The Eco Right Speaks podcast is your conservative home for weekly climate news, interviews, points of view, climate heroes, jesters, and so much more. We'll share the stories of people leading in their local communities and around the country. Welcome to the Eco Right Speaks podcast. It's brought to you by RepublicEN.org. Hello, and welcome to the Eco Right Speaks, your climate podcast produced by the team at RepublicEN.org. I'm your host, Chelsea Henderson. Listeners, if you've been readers of my weekly Eco Right newsletter, then you know I am a longtime fan of today's guest, Carmel, Indiana Mayor Jim Brainerd. If you aren't readers of my Eco Right newsletter, hop on over to our website, Republic en.org and you can sign up there. Once a week, I drop into your inbox that week's most relevant eco-right climate news. So go ahead, sign up. I'll wait. Anyway, Mayor Brainerd is a Republican, but as we mentioned a few episodes back, I think we talked about this quote. There are three political parties in America, Democrats, Republicans, and mayors. That just really resonates with me, and I think it resonates with Mayor Brainerd, too. Um, He really, while hailing the legacy of Republicans from Teddy Roosevelt to George H.W. Bush, Mayor Brainerd also has led his own climate actions in his town that have not only improved the air and water quality and reduced emissions, but... These measures have also saved money for the residents of Carmel, which you will hear momentarily. But first, Mayor Brainerd was elected to serve in 1996, making him one of Indiana's longest serving mayors. In pursuit of climate change, he's co-chairing the Energy Independence and Climate Protection Task Force for the U.S. Conference of Mayors. And back in the day, he was on President Obama's Task Force on Climate Preparedness and Resilience. I'm pretty sure he's the winner for most mentions in my aforementioned newsletter. So without further ado, my conversation with Carmel, Indiana Mayor Jim Brainerd. So welcome back, listeners. I'm so, 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 so happy to be in conversation today with my favorite mayor I don't know. So my friend is the mayor of the town I live in, but my favorite mayor I don't know Mayor Brainerd, welcome to the show. It's wonderful to be here with you. Thanks for having me. So, you know, in the work that I do for Republic EN, where I'm always trying to highlight the positive efforts of Republicans on climate change, early on, your name was coming up in so many news hits for the steps that you are taking in Carmel to make it more environmentally friendly, climate friendly. What first gave you that idea and and you know how did it strike you that that was something important that you needed to do at the local level well i think it starts as a child i was in boy scouts a little town in in northern indiana and uh many of my friends in elementary school were my parents were teachers but many of my friends uh parents were farmers and and you know if you remember back to the history of the great depression we had these dust bowls because we hadn't planted uh, sufficient trees. We didn't take care of the soil. And and so uh, in the 60s, you know, as, as a, a child, we, we just kind of grew up learning from the, the children and the farmers and everybody. Is, we had to take care of the earth and leave it in a better place than we found it for future generations. That just seemed like the very 
most patriotic and best thing we could do. Um, and so then it, as mayor, I realized that mayors had, after I was elected mayor, I'm a lawyer and as a history major as an undergraduate. So I, I didn't know much. I wasn't a scientist, but it, it occurred to me after seeing everything that mayors do were essentially city managers in Indiana, the elected mayors and so much in city design, we've designed our, especially our suburban cities and our cities in general since the end of World War II uh, for cars, not for people. And so the average American is still spending an hour, two hours a day, um, according to which study you read, in their automobile. Uh, it's not a very high quality of life. It doesn't bring people together. Um, so we've tried to say, okay, how do we make the leap from a, a, a suburb that you can only drive places into a place where you can live and, and, and walk most places you need to go. And if you have to drive, it's a very short, quick trip as well. And a lot of that, and, and so mayors have a tremendous amount of influence over how that city is designed and then how people live in that city. And of course, there's all sorts of studies that talk about uh, advantages of public health by avoiding sprawl. I recommend Dick Jackson's book, who, uh, Dr. Jackson, who, who uh, was Arnold Schwarzenegger's uh, Commissioner of Public Health in California, wrote a book uh, for the title, uh, Urban uh, Sprawl in Public Health, and, and documents very carefully uh, with tremendous amount of citations and studies um, why public health people are so much healthier and live longer if they're in an environment where they're just walking 10 or 15 minutes a day to work. The way we all did prior to 1945 when World War II ended and we quit walking and all got in cars. I think it's important to remember it wasn't that many years ago that uh, uh, no more than 25% of the U.S. public even had an automobile. That was a statistic at the end of World War uh, II. Uh, and then everything changed. And uh, so mayors can have a great impact. Mayors are also responsible in many cases for electrical grids, water systems, sanitary sewer systems, which are tremendous energy users, and done poorly, tremendous, can do tremendous damage to our wetlands and our rivers and streams. I actually, um, a quote went around our team members a few weeks ago that was, there are three political parties in America, Republicans, Democrats, and mayors. And I just thought that was really funny because I know as my friend who is a, who is a mayor and, and probably you can attest to this too, that people don't, your party label doesn't matter when you lose power or if your garbage isn't picked up or your street's not plowed or all the little things that kind of go into the management of a city. So you just said you're the, the ultimate city manager in, in a way. And so you really do get to set the tone for your community and how your community operates. We do. And in our state, uh, you know, mayors are executives. They're not part of the city council. Uh, so much like uh, on the federal level, you know, Congress is a legislative body and, and the president is the executive. Here, the city council is a legislative body. And, and the mayor is the executive charged with running government day to day. And quite honestly, we don't have the time or leisure to engage much in party politics. Our, you know, and once you're elected, I, I strongly believe that you're mayor for everybody. And if somebody has a drainage issue, as somebody needs something, wants something, has an idea, 
doesn't matter which political party they're from. Uh, the question is, is it good for the community? And uh, if you govern like that, I think it's much better for the body politic as a whole. Um, and I think that's the tradition in the United States that for a variety of reasons, we've gotten away from the last 15, 20 years. We need to look for areas uh, where we can make improvements together. Uh, I strongly believe there's way too much money in, in, in cycles at all levels. Um, you have to be able to compete. So the other side is going to have a lot of money. You need to raise a lot of money as well. But we need to change the law so that uh, we're not forced to do that. We can try to bring back some of the collegiality and, and discussions where we can still be friends with people we may disagree with and look for areas of compromise and advancement. Um, and maybe you just agree, you know, it's a cliche, but agree not to agree on certain things, but the things that we do agree on, things that could uh, bring everybody in the country together uh, to make everyone's lives better. Yeah, you know, when I worked in the Senate and now my producer price just um, earned himself five bucks because he always has to, he always um, tries to guess when he thinks I might throw that out there that I used to work in the Senate. Um, my old boss, John Warner, one of his best friends in the oh. Senate was was Ted Kennedy. And, you know, on the ideological spectrum, they were right and left, but they did have a core set of values they agreed on. And they might have seen differently about how to um, resolve those issues, but they they didn't take things personally. And I asked him once, um, probably about five or six years ago, what made politics different then to now and he said it was the money, right? That now campaigns are so expensive that at the end of the day, the end of the work session, you're running off to a fundraiser instead of going to dinner to hash out a bill or or it, just to be nice to have a yeah. nice dinner with a friend who might be on the other side of the aisle. And, and that's too bad. I think we can get back to the traditional type of collaborative. Um, so to, to loop us back to climate change, um, you know, it, it, it is, I think, one of the hardest things about the issue is that it's, you know, whether you call it global warming or climate change, it's something that's happening all over the world. And maybe it feels too big and too abstract for people to take a look at the local level and how you can make an impact. And so one of the things that really struck me about you when I first read your name was that you weren't you didn't let that stop you. You said, we can take care of our little part of the planet and then maybe even be an inspiration to others. So talk to me about that process. Like you, you were looking at, you wanted to have this livable, walkable community, and then you totally changed your um, traffic planning. We did. We uh, tried to uh, design a city where we're, People have options. They can live in the traditional suburban areas if they choose to, or in an apartment or townhome or condominium in our downtown, our new downtown area. So at the end of World War II, let me tell you a little bit about Carmel, Indiana. At the end of World War II, it was about 700 people. I did not grow up here, uh, but it's on the edge of the Indianapolis, a 2 million uh, metro area. Uh, and it grew very quickly. Today, it's about 102,000. I became mayor. We're just under 30,000 people. So I have uh, been mayor during much of the growth from 30,000 to under 2,000. And we tried to look at 
economic development. And we, we don't have mountains or oceans here. And, and we don't even have a river in the downtown area like a lot of cities. Um, and so we know we're flat. We know that we have to create a quality of life by working in partnership with the private sector and, and uh, not-for-profits that can attract the best and brightest employees here. And if we don't do that, we're going to fail at economic development because one of our 125 some corporate headquarters international in some cases are going to say, you know, I can't hire the people I need here in Carmel, Indiana. We're going to move to New York or DC Metro or San Francisco or LA or Texas or somewhere. And so we focus in every area on the quality of life and walkability and housing options. Sometimes a Republican will say to me, uh, why are we building so many apartments? It uh, is going to change the nature of, of our voting habits here, you know, bring in the quote, unquote, the wrong people as they don't own property. And I point out very quickly that um, if you believe in limited government, you shouldn't be telling people they have to live like this, otherwise they can't live in our community. You know, if you're telling everybody you only can live in, on a half an acre in a subdivision on a cul-de-sac, that's, that's a really intrusive government. And so I think it's government's role to make sure that we have housing options. So, so it's, it's about this overall competitiveness. So we want to have good schools, good libraries, great parks, great trails, uh, a community with beautiful trees, uh, community that, that brings people from different backgrounds together and all these things uh, in, in public spaces, you know, bring people together in public spaces like we used to many years ago before we all got into cars. Um, so people from different backgrounds, different religions, different countries all get to know each other uh, in these public spaces. So the environment is one piece of this puzzle of a really competitive quality of life. And I would say, you know, our competition isn't another suburb in the Midwest. Our competition is Paris, America, and Europe, and, and all over the world. Um, and, and so we, we've set really high goals. And one of those goals is is to have uh, uh, the environment, have a beautiful environment, a clean environment. Uh, I, I think when we look at the cost of environmental progress, one of the things that rarely is considered in calculating those costs are the health impacts. We have people dying four or five years earlier than otherwise would be the case uh, because of air pollution. There, there's tremendous cost to that. There's a tremendous uh, personal cost. Also, you know, we've invested a lot in the people that are alive in their jobs and their careers and their education. Uh, so there's a cost to the economy as well. Um, sometimes I'll point out when I'm your group, I've yet to meet a Republican or a Democrat who doesn't want their family to drink clean water and breathe clean air. But looking at it at the local level. So let's talk about your roundabouts, which I think is something you're very famous for and for bringing to Carmel. And I'm imagining other communities have have taken your inspiration to install them as well. So how many did you have when you started down this path and how many do you have now? When I became mayor, we didn't have any roundabouts in the city of Carmel. We had one rotary, uh, but not a roundabout. Uh, that rotary has now been taken out. Um, today, we I think we're at 141. 
So explain to our listeners why that, why having rotaries helps with air pollution. Safety is number one. And that is an 80% reduction in injury accidents roughly across the United States and Europe. Uh, our uh, U.S. average for fatalities per 100,000 people is about 12 per year. Uh, in Carmel, our five-year trailing average is two. And none of those in the last uh, five years have been at an intersection. Well, safety is number one. Number two is cost. Traffic lights cost a lot of money. Three, you know, 300,000 plus, you got to replace them every year. Plus, there's now there's some cost to landscaping in the middle or putting public art in the middle of a roundabout as well. Or switching out a stoplight about roundabout. There's a lot of cost there. But if you're four way stop and you have the choice of a stoplight or a roundabout, the roundabout's always going to be less expensive. Um, then we get to the environmental, the light thread, and you're sitting there burning gas. And, and that's what the roundabout avoids. We, we reduce um, emissions. And fuel costs. The public art engineer estimated that uh, a few dollars a gallon, uh, we're saving between four and five million dollars on average for roundabout per year for the public. Wow! So I mean, that's just a, that's a, a side benefit I hadn't thought of. But it's yeah. but it's a but it saves people a lot of money, and that's what government should should be doing. Uh, but and and then we save tons of carbon per year too, because not only you're not idling, but even more importantly, if you remember physics class and remember the law of momentum takes more energy to go from zero to 15 than it does from 15 to 30 miles per hour and and so most of the time occasionally you stop at the roundabout it's busy rush hour work or somebody else to go through but most of the time you don't stop you just slow down uh and, it, and speed is why it's so much safer too but you're going at slower speed you don't burn as much fuel you're not accelerating from zero to 15 a lot of fuel um, and so we save all the air quality is better. And here's a more subtle savings to the environment and a cost savings as well. Many times mayors, city council members will get calls from an angry constituent. Uh, you know, I'm stuck in traffic for X number of minutes on this street. You've got to do something. And you, you look at it and, 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 okay, what's the problem with this road? And being not being an engineer and not having an engineer background, I look at these things a little differently, you know, at least with no preconceived uh, thoughts because I just didn't know anything about traffic management. Um, and figured out that I think there's a difference between lane capacity and intersection capacity. And if we fix the intersection capacity, we don't have to widen all those lanes. There's a tremendous savings there. And so roundabouts move 50% more cars per hour. We don't have the need. In fact, we took one major street through Carmel last year. We still got a couple phases of that project to complete. Took it from a five-lane road down to a two-lane road. We put a big median filled with trees and beautiful flowering bushes in the middle. We put a bike lane over on one side and had one lane in each direction instead of two rid of the suicide line, what we call suicide line in the middle where people can make that left turn. And we were able to do that without reducing trip times because we took all the stoplights and replaced them with roundabouts. And as there wasn't a lane capacity issue at that point. It was intersection capacity that was slowing down traffic. Uh, Golden, Colorado did a similar project that we looked at a number of years before we did. Has worked out very well for them as well. Again, another relative, 
mainly a suburban community with a small, older downtown. Um, and there's been some in some other cities across the United States. We call it a road diet. We're putting this road on a diet. We're making it more narrow um, because we managed to uh, to uh, capacity. But that thing gives you an opportunity to have wider sidewalks, more friendly for pedestrians. You can slow down speeds. Um, because you're not waiting at the intersection without impacting trip times for a motorist. And you can plant trees along those sidewalks and plant trees down the middle and get a nice tree canopy, uh, which is also very good for your community. We're energy optimists and climate realists. Stand with us at republicen.org. Now back to this week's episode. You do steps like this and you're really you've been in your community it sounds like for if you've been there for a growth from 30,000 people to 102,000 you've been mayor for a while um when you take a step like this what does it signal to your fellow residents about kind of bigger broader climate action is there like a dot connecting that happens that if we could take these steps here in Carmel, maybe the state of Indiana could take some steps. Maybe the federal government can take some steps. Or does climate action still feel kind of scary to people? To some people, I think it does. You know, and I think there are different ways to get there. We all remember the Great Recession, 2008, 2010. There was a stimulus bill passed, and we uh, mayors across the country, both from both parties, lobbied to. Uh, have included what we call an energy and environmental block grant. Recognize, you know, this is a Nixon program. It's it's a, one of the old revenue sharing ideas, Republican idea. Uh, it's a big country. People have different needs, but within this broad category of um, energy and environment, you know, some city may take that money and build a park. Another city may fix their sewer plant, do a variety of things. We took our funding, about $700,000, and used to switch out most of our streetlights, LEDs, uh, which use much, much less energy, reduces your energy use, I, I think, close to 90%. I'm not sure that's the right number, but substantially. What I do know is that um, we've got almost a 21% return on that $700,000 in lower electricity cost every year. So I was talking to one fellow who's clearly a climate change denier. Okay, he's entitled to his opinion. Uh, I encourage him to go read some things he may not have been familiar with. But one of those guys that just agreed to disagree with me. He was sort of giving me a hard time about spending all that money, $700,000, just to switch out streetlights. And I said, um, I said, but we're getting a 21% return on that investment. He said, huh? And I explained why. He said, oh, I guess that was a good idea. So he got, he agreed with me in the end, but for a, not a climate reason, but for an entire for a fiscal reason, so I learned from that. I think that there are different ways to get people to the same endpoint. They have may have different goals in mind, and we need to, as good climate advocates, we need to look at other ways of getting people uh, to where I think they need to. Well, and I am a big fan of Senator Braun, um, Senator Mike Braun, you're one of your one of your senators. And I know he last year made some waves when he joined or he helped co-found in the Senate with his pal, Chris Coons from Delaware, the Climate 
Solutions Caucus, bipartisan group, and he is the Republican co-chair of that group. But he also introduced a bill, and and listeners, we're going to have Senator Braun on soon. I know I've been promising that for a few months. We're just working with his schedule. But the um, Growing Climate Solutions Act, which is geared toward farmers, and what you were just saying about kind of meeting people where they are, I think that something like the work that Senator Braun is doing can reach an audience that maybe a more urban mayor can't or a nonprofit like I work for can't like we everybody has their trusted messengers right and every um you know we're kind of all in this climate change thing together whether everyone acknowledges that we're all in it together or not we are and you kind of have to find the ways to reach people that are going to resonate with them which it sounds like you have done with with your community but how much of an impact do you think somebody like Senator Braun being more conservative in the, from a conservatively very red state, how much influence does he have in, in making Indianans think a little bit differently about the issue? I think that, uh, you know, a large part in a state that has farming, although Indiana has the highest uh, per capita number of manufacturing jobs in the United States, there's still a lot of farming in the rural areas in Indiana. And he, he uh, Senator Brown comes from one of those areas, and he can um, have a tremendous influence. Uh, there's a lot of issues with how farming is conducted in the environment, uh, particularly uh, bio weight from the farms and, and adult farming. So I, I think a, a thoughtful, balanced approach to those things and provide some federal government help. Um, to farmers that probably want to, but financially are afraid they can and still make a living uh, is a very good thing. And, you know, Senator Brown is a new senator from Indiana, and I think he has approached this issue very thoughtfully and, and, and can have a huge impact. You know, Republicans have a history on the environment. And I think it's important to mention that, you know, going back all the way to Teddy Roosevelt, the Republican, uh, you know, set aside most of our national park lands. It was uh, President Eisenhower in the uh, 1950s who set aside the Arctic Reserve Force. It was President Nixon and then later Ford when he took over that uh, we didn't have a federal environmental agency. And, and President Nixon signed uh, the legislation that brought the Environmental Protection Agency into existence, as well as the Migratory Bird Act. And, First time we really, the Clean Drinking Water Amendments, the first time we really had any teeth in that law. Um, the Endangered Species Act, all these were Nixon Ford programs. And it was uh, Ronald Reagan, I think, who under Margaret Thatcher's urging, uh, organized the Montreal uh, meeting, which resulted in the Montreal Protocols to fix the ozone hole in at the southern uh, polar uh you know, the, at the South Pole, and you know, we had one in the Northern Hemisphere, you know, all sorts of people with more percentages of people or another uh, sun-related diseases, and so fixing that ozone hole is tremendously important. It was uh, George Bush, the senior, that you know, set up the process so that we actually do, do surveys to see where we are as a country, so we have a baseline and, and uh, know where we are in terms of protecting the environment. So there's this, until recently, there's been this tremendous um, Republican involvement in in uh, working across the aisle to come up with good workable 
solutions to make our environment better for the people that live in our country. And it, it's disappointing that uh, uh, many in the Republican, not all by any means, but some in the Republican Party have, have don't know the history and are are engaging in denial of science. Uh, you know, I'm not a scientist, but I tend to believe people generally or look for a consensus of scientists who have dedicated their lives to science and studying it and coming up with good recommendations for it. We, we have to have some trust that they really aren't political, that they're just trying to do their job and, and do it as well as they can. Well, I think that's a great place to wrap up. I mean, you just have said everything that we've been saying for years, you know, this is this does not have to be climate change, environment, whether, you know, whether you're looking at environment broadly or climate change specifically, it doesn't have to be a left issue or a right issue. It's an everybody issue. And you might come at it a little differently on where you want the solutions to go, but you have to be at the table. And if you're just denying that there's an issue, you don't get to be at the table. You know, you're not going to be invited to the table. And so um, there's that old, that old joke remember if you're not at the table you're lunch mm-hmm. and i was going to say when you were talking about the not a scientist one of my favorite um uh quotes to that is senator lindsey graham who says well you know if nine out of ten doctors tell you that you have cancer that you're sick you're going to believe the nine doctors not the one so if you're looking at climate change and you know it's what 97 percent of climate scientists say there's a problem why would you believe the three percent <laughs> So we may want to believe the three percent. We've got to be realistic and rational. For sure. Well, it's been such a pleasure. I I did not share with you at the start that I have a little Indiana connection uh-huh. and that I my mom grew up there. Um, she was a refugee. Actually, my grandparents were refugees. Um, she was born in a displaced persons camp after World War II. They were from Latvia. And uh, I was gonna they, say lucky. I thought maybe you're Latvian, yeah. Yep. So first they ended up in Nebraska. They went Nebraska, Ohio, Indiana. And my grandfather, who didn't really speak English very well, um, he had one of those manufacturing jobs that you talked about that that the state has. And um, What part of Indiana is your mother from? Highland is the town that she grew up in. Oh, way up up in what we call the region, which (laughs) is an area just outside of Chicago. Everybody in Indiana refers to it as the region. region. Even the people who live there. Um, well, I do have family there still. Unfortunately, I haven't, you know, we, they like to get out of Indiana. So usually if I'm seeing that particular set of the family, we're meeting in San Diego for a wedding or <laughs> someplace. Um, well, Carmel, it's beautiful, man. well, thank you so much, Mayor. And I wish you and your family good health as we get through the rest of this pandemic and, Look forward to travel again and maybe catching you in D.C. at some climate. I was about to say, I'd love to have a cup of coffee or lunch with you and get back to normal here in a few weeks, hopefully. Hopefully. Well, thank you so much for everything you do. Good to talk with you. Thank you for doing this. Hey, Price, how's it going? We haven't chatted in a while. It has been a while. You bugged me and you told me, why can't we do this in... We just haven't had a chance because we've had, you've had some great guests, and um, I, I thought the last couple episodes have been fantastic, especially the Texas one, where we're able to really hopefully shed a lot of light, thanks to Joshua Rhodes. Um, I know he was an episode ago, but also a couple of our spokespeople. Um, I thought it was just a very strong, powerful uh, episode that really 
you heard it from the people who were affected right from their mouths. I thought it was really fantastic, which is the reason why we haven't been able to do this. But we're doing it now, and it's good to be back with you. It is. I really missed you. And you know who else missed you? Um, my cat Fang is sitting right here next to me. So anytime I get on a Skype, a Zoom, anything where she can hear the audio where I don't have my headphones in, she comes running. It might be Zoom yoga or a webinar we're doing because I think she's super social and she's really starved for company because we obviously have not had anyone over to our house in a year. And so today I am working from my living room because my furnace is broken and I have a fire in my fireplace to stay warm. So when I'm in my office, she can't like get right up in my lap. So right here, she's sitting about as close to me as she could be without being in my lap because she heard your voice. She came running. I'm surprised <laughs> she's not meowing at us. Oh my goodness. We need to put her on the podcast. We've got to get her as a she, guest, a cameo. I, I'm working on her. I'm working on her. <laughs> all right. All right. Well, um, thanks to Mayor Brainerd for his interview. One of the things I thought that was really interesting to listen him talk about is his you know infamous uh, roundabouts there. Uh, yes, in Carmel. do not call them rotaries. Uh, I learned there is a difference. <laughs> yes, you did, and he corrected you. But uh, I, I, it was just – I've read a lot about him. If you know anything about Mayor Brainerd in, in Carmel, Indiana, you know um, you know about the roundabouts that he's basically instituted citywide everywhere and anywhere and everywhere. I mean, it, they're all over the place. But to hear him explain why, I thought was really cool. Yeah, and you know, one thing about Mayor Brainerd that I just want to say is that early on in this current iteration of what I do, or partially what I do for RepublicEN.org, where I'm constantly on the lookout for eco-right newsmakers, and you know, this was an evolution from a, a job I did where I was in 2015? 2015. 2015. Oh my God, that was so long <laughs> ago, Price. I was following these 17 Republicans running in the primary for president, remember those days, and reporting what they were saying on climate change on the regular. And then as the field narrowed it down to the one person who ended up being um, the nominee and then the president, we shifted to include any eco-right person, local, state, federal level, saying something about climate change. And Mayor Brainerd was one of the people who was just like a repeat story doing this, saying that, like just had his head yeah. and his intentions in the right place. And, you know, to hear that he'd been in office for so long, I hadn't really connected that. So he really knows his community. They obviously trust him. And I have to believe that that's a, a needle mover, right, in a state like Indiana that is known to be a little more conservative. Yeah. And I think that one of the other things he said, too, uh, that if you listen to the interview, which if you're still listening at this point, I'm sure you did, um, the fact you know about how mayors get things done, and regardless of whether you have an R, I, D, whatever party affiliation you might be, that stuff is really out the window. It's a it, it it's about um, it it's where the rubber meets the road, and you know getting things done. Mayors are not. You know, it's not about, you know, the political bias you have or my tribe or my team can't do that. And most of the time, it's simply about, um, you know, trying to fix that, you know, that, that pothole that might be on Street X or whatever. It's about trying to fix and do things that are local to the local community. And that was something refreshing that, you know, mayors are on the front lines of this. And, you know, he articulated all the 
different reasons and things how and why. And so yep. you hear it all the time from from local mayors, especially, you know, I, I know in South Florida and everywhere around, you know, the state of Florida, you know, they, they talk about that stuff. It is the front line of freedom when it comes to the local issues, local impact, and certainly in all communities across the country, people are feeling the effects of climate change locally. And that's another place. Well, I mean, it's like that quote, right? There are three parties in America, Democrats, Republicans, and mayors. Yep. <laughs> so he really embodies that and and also has a great deal of respect for the legacy of the Republican Party and the leaders that we've had in the past. So um, it was a it was like a dream come true to get to spend that time with him um, recording the episode. And I look forward to more conversations with him. All right. We got to get out of here, but we want to thank uh, some of our new Republican members, which you can join us. Republican.org forward slash join. It takes all of seconds to do it. Please. We need you. Republican.org forward slash join. Um, a few new members going back actually a couple weeks here because it's been a little while since we got to actually do this part. But Craig C. in Iowa, Leah M. in Connecticut, Tim B. in South Carolina, Brandon M. in Maryland, Isaac W. in North Dakota, Daniel E. in Missouri, Morgan K. in Ohio, Grace W. in Georgia, Yahara C. in Florida, Tyler B. in Minnesota. I'd like to know or like to state that of the 10 names I just stated, there are no state repeats. So we have people from across the country. We need you. Please sign up. Stand with us, Jels. Yes, please join us. And if you're listening, please, please, please rate the podcast. Give us a five. You know you want to. You've listened to this point then you know that we deserve that five and that quick line, that quick shout out. And when you write a review, Price with his curling radio voice is <laughs> going to read it on air. Yes, please give us a review on Apple Podcast. Um, it takes all of seconds. Literally, it's a click of the button. We will love five stars, but we'll take whatever you give us. And if you want to write a comment, something that you particularly like about the podcast or maybe even don't like. We'll take whatever it is, but we would love a rating and a comment there. And yes, as she said, we will read it on an upcoming episode here of the Eco Right Speaks. But Chelsea, you want to tease next week or? So next week is still up in the air. Have a couple of ideas or prospects. Um, but I do want to preview or, or at least let listeners know that you know, last year we started this podcast midway through the year, right? In June. And we went full out every weekend or every Tuesday, except for the um, Thanksgiving week. And then obviously the Christmas, New Year's holidays. So we had 26 episodes in 2020. And this year we're going to be a little easier on ourselves. So we're breaking things up into, I'm thinking of it as quarters, right? So um, when we after our next couple of guests, we'll take a little break. And I'm thinking like a spring break, right? Like a two-week break. And then we'll come back in April. And I do know that our first guest for, are we going to call it season three or season 2.2, whatever we call it, when we come back from spring break, I'm going to be talking to one of the founders of Science Moms. And this is a really cool group of scientist moms who've come together to preach on climate. So I love it. Well, there you go. We're going to take our spring break, give Chelsea a much needed respite, let her lather up with suntan lotion and go 
<laughs> bathe in the nice warm sun because with her furnace out, she certainly <laughs> needs to be front and center with some vitamin D. But until next week, we will see you then. For Chelsea Henderson, Price Atkinson, thank you to everybody for listening to the EcoRight Speaks, for downloading, listening, and subscribing. We could not do it without you. And certainly thank you to Mayor Brainerd, our guest this week. So, Chelsea, until next week, we'll see you then. See you, Price. Thanks for listening to this week's edition of the EcoRight Speaks podcast, brought to you by the team at RepublicEN.org. Make sure to visit RepublicEN.org to learn more and find out how you can be a local eco-right leader.